I'm going to ask you to go in your Bible if you have one with you, um, maybe electronically or hard copy to the book of Genesis, Genesis 37. We'll get there in just a minute. If you're new to New Hope, um, we're working through a series called E2E. There's these booklets that are out in the atrium after the service. Be sure and grab one. Uh, we'll be in like lesson 23 this week moving forward. So if you want to get caught up on where we're at, you'll see it's the story of Joseph and uh, pretty excited about getting into this with you. But big highlight today, we have baptisms coming up in a few minutes. Pretty excited about that. So much to pray about and to focus our minds on. So let's ask God right now to be our teacher and to help us celebrate well for the baptisms too. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you recognizing that you are sovereign, you rule over this universe, and you are on the throne right now. And we praise you and thank you for your ability to control all things. Even when things don't go the way we think they should go, um, you still are at work, and you will teach us that this morning. I, pr I pray, Father, through looking at the life of Joseph, that we understand that you're in the hard things and in the good things. So we pray that you would focus our mind and allow us to be taught by you and to be shaped by you. We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. I want to kind of set the stage for you with Genesis 37 and where it's going. Um, you're going to find that this story of Joseph is just remarkable, not because of only its length, but because of how it probes some really deep theological issues. If the word theology is new to you, it's essentially the study of God or the things of God. And within that, it's who we are to God and how we understand Him and, and who He not only is to us, but how we're supposed to respond to the things that we discover through Him. So you're going to find some really deep questions popping up for you as you work through this story of Joseph. I, I want to start with an anchor verse this morning and let you see how it speaks to the things that we're going to deal with this morning. But I've, I'll start with just asking a question. Has anybody had anything, just a show of hands, anything go wrong in your life this year? <laughs> Didn't go quite as you expected. How about in the last week? Anything not go quite as you expected this last week? So we have a sense of anticipation. Many times just by the way we plan things, we think things are going to go in a certain direction, and then we discover to our surprise that it doesn't always play out the way we anticipated that it would play out. Let me take you to Psalms in the book of Psalms, chapter 76 and verse 10. And I want you to drink in this statement. It can be very confusing when you first read it. How in the world, how could the wrath of man praise God? That verse is part of a, a longer section of a chapter that's ultimately saying God is going to get the glory. God gets the glory out of everything. So ultimately, God gets the glory because He's the one who alone can cause all things to work together for good, even when you're confused by the circumstances you're going through, because He can orchestrate things according to His purposes. But in the meantime, there's a high probability that if you're a person who speaks for the truth, and if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you stand for righteousness, there's a high probability that you could become a target. And as a result of becoming a target, it may be that individuals will try and silence you. For that very reason, one of my prayers for this church since we launched 2007, pretty consistently, is that we would be bold. 
that as a church body, we would speak boldly for the things of God. Not that many of you aren't already, but we could all use an extra degree of boldness in our life, an extra degree of encouragement to be bold. Jesus knew that Peter needed that. Before we get into Genesis 37, just let me set the stage for you this way. Just before Jesus is about to be crucified, he's having a conversation with Peter, and he says to Peter this, which I'm sure caught Peter by surprise. Peter, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail, which I think was probably shocking to Peter. Like, what? How could my relationship, my faith in you fail? Jesus went on to say, I'm praying for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail for this reason, because Satan desires to sift you like wheat, meaning he wants to run you through the mill and he wants to grind you to powder. And Jesus didn't say he's not going to be able to do that. What Jesus said is in the midst of that mill, when you're being ground and pulverized, I'm praying for you that your faith would not fail. Therefore, it's really ironic that 30 years later that the aged Peter is the very one to speak of the issue of boldness, and he writes a really strong encouragement to the church. Let me take you to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify, which means set apart. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. That's a really, really remarkable passage because Peter's writing that from Rome and Nero is Caesar. And Nero is killing Christians left and right. And he's running them through the mill and he's pulverizing them. Christians are being shredded in the arena. They're being thrown to the lions. And yet Peter can write to the church, even you, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. You may not be feeling so blessed in those moments when you're going through that kind of persecution. So as you read 1 Peter chapter 3, you'd have to say, what happened to Peter? To go from the place where Jesus said, I'm praying for you that your faith may not fail, to get to the place where you're writing the encouragement of encouragements to the church, that even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. How did Peter get to the point where he's willing to take a bullet for the kingdom? Trials. Things didn't go according to how he planned. It wasn't just that the past year had not gone according to his strategy. It had been the past 30 years. But he recognized there was a bigger issue at stake. So let me show you one of the examples of what he went through. This comes from Acts chapter 5, verse 40. They flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. We read through verses like that so casually. They flog them with whips and beat them. And yet, look at their response in verse 41. They went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. See, what Peter is writing is this, suffering for the sake of righteousness is real. It really happens. And if you stand for truth, you will become a target. But never forget, Jesus said, if you do that, you're blessed. 
I count you as my own. When they revile and persecute you, blessed are you. And I say this in the very beginning because the reality is this. There are those who are so hostile to the things of God, they will seek to intimidate you and persecute you, and you will endure hardship for the sake of the things of God. I know it doesn't feel like Happy Sunday right now, does it? You'll find joy as you work through this passage this morning. But we need to start with the reality that God does allow and permit difficult things to come our way, not only to shape us. We'd like to think it's all about just shaping us. It does shape us along the way, but the the bigger issue is it's to accomplish His will. So just as a side note before we step into Genesis 37 in this story, Peter also added a, by the way, here's the bio, the way, Don't, don't find yourself defenseless. He said it this way, verse 40, sanctify set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. And he's not talking about a military defense. He's talking about a mental defense. Be ready mentally to take a position for why you stand on the things that you stand for. So he uses the word apologia. It sounds like apology. It's in your notes this morning. You see it on the screen. It sounds like the English word apology, but it's not that. It's a derivative of that making a mental defense. In other words, knowing why you believe what you believe and knowing that you know that you know. And that, New Hope, requires knowing the material. That's why we work through E2E, eternity to eternity, by the way, if you're new to New Hope. E2E is a study of the things of God. We have to know what we're supposed to stand for. So, when you do the right thing, but it appears that those who are in the wrong are getting away with it. Where does that leave you? You've done what you're supposed to do, and you still come up short. In those times, it can feel as though God either doesn't care or He's not on the throne. That's usually the conclusion a lot of people come to, especially when the bad guys are winning. And it leaves you with a sense of, Where's the justice? Where is the justice? And yet Peter says, in those situations, you've got to be ready to make a defense. Why do you believe what you believe? Because Jesus is ultimately going to get the victory. So Peter ends it by saying, do that with gentleness and reverence, speaking the truth in love. So in 1 Peter 3.16, keeping a clear conscience so those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Mmm, baby, that's a big one. Is it God's will that you would suffer? Peter just said it's better that you would suffer for doing good. Is it God's will that you would suffer? It's tempting to think that when we suffer while doing good, that the circumstances that we're going through that must have totally caught God by surprise. He didn't see that coming. Because the alternative is to think that God intentionally allowed His own to endure some degree of hardship. And in our rationale as humans, we think, well, that doesn't sound like a loving God, that He would allow me to go through something like that. Well, let me give you a reality check from Scripture. It says this in Proverbs 20, 24, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. Jeremiah 10, 23, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, 
Proverbs 16:9, the man of a mind, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So scripture is reminding us that according to God's own word, everything, everything is under God's control. That means, and I hope you agree with this new hope, God is sovereign. And if he's not sovereign, we have a much bigger problem than whether or not God allows suffering. Because if he's not sovereign, then he didn't know Jesus was going to the cross. And be like, oh, what are they doing? But God is sovereign. And that's why Jesus could say emphatically, this, this plan has been laid since before the foundations of the earth. You're going to find all these realities popping out of the story of Joseph. I, I love Joseph. He's one of my favorite Old Testament characters, not just because of the length of the story, but because of the detail that we get. Do you know that 14, the final 14 chapters of Genesis are dedicated to the story of Joseph? There's no one else except Abraham that gets that kind of paper coverage in the book of Genesis. So there's a lot of detail about this guy's life. And when you probe very deeply, you're going to discover a story abounding with profound theological implications for your life. Because God is evident in every single scene, and He's ruling, and He's overruling the decisions of mankind. And in the end, God builds a hero, and He creates a nation which will usher in the arrival of Jesus on this planet. So it's really crucial to understand Joseph's life. And this is the Joseph of the Old Testament, by the way. If you're new to the Bible, there's a Joseph, obviously, in the New Testament that's the father of Jesus and, and the wife or the husband of Mary, his wife. This is a different Joseph. This is the Joseph of the Old Testament, the son of Jacob, and he is the link pin in the Old Testament. He links Israel the family with Israel the nation, and you'll watch his story unfold because he's part of the ultimate blended family, one of 12 sons from four different mothers, and these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Let's jump right in. Chapter 37, verse 1. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. In other words, he's saying, here's what became of Jacob. You want to know what happened to him? Here it is. And he keeps going. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Because genealogy is so important in the Bible, Moses goes out of his way to write, these are the sons of this handmaid, and these are the sons of this handmaid, but they're all from the same father. They're, they're all the sons of Jacob, but they have different moms. To understand the setting, Jacob's back in the promised land. He's left Uncle Laban in the dust. We saw last week that he dealt with his brother Esau. And now he's settled in the land of Canaan, the promised land, where his dad lives, Isaac. But just as Isaac before him, the promise to become a great nation hasn't happened yet. It's well underway, but it has not yet been fulfilled. Enter onto the scene, Joseph. He's 17 years of age. It says this in verse 2, Joseph, when 17 years of age, and it's going to go on to tell you that as a 17-year-old, he's been made a ruling manager. 
He's being given authority over the empire of Jacob. And Jacob is not just the only inheritor of this empire. It started with Abraham. It passed on to Isaac. And then it went to Jacob. And now Joseph is going to be the ruler over Jacob Incorporated. And he's got a huge amount of responsibility. Now, obviously, he's pretty young for the role that he's being put into, but also in comparison to his own brothers, he's like number 11 in the birth order. He's not the first one. He's certainly not Reuben. He's way, way down the list. And what's implied here in the verses, it's, there's oversight that's been given to him. He's becoming the chief shepherd, which means he's got to have superior qualities of character to manage other people. So we're told in that first verse that he's working with his brothers, which are his half-brothers. So his employees, if you will, according to verse 2, are the sons of Zilpah and the sons of Bilhah. And these are his step-brothers, and they're under his oversight, and he's doing a performance evaluation. And this evaluation requires him to report to his boss, his dad, that you've got some bad employees, dad. And he brings him a bad report. Verse 3. Now, Israel, and don't be confused by that, this is a person before it's a nation. Israel is also the name of Jacob. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. If you look in your notes this morning, you'll see the word sauné right there, and I'll, you'll see it up on the screen as well. And sauné means you hate someone to the degree that they stink to you. And I don't mean physically smell. It's called odious. They're so repulsive to that person that their nose wrinkles up, and they just want to avoid them, and, and that's this word sauné, and that's how much they hate him. Now, you would think if anyone could understand how favoritism will produce strife among brothers, it's going to be Jacob. He just went through this with Esau. His own parents' preferential attitudes towards Jacob and Esau totally messed up his family. But like father, like son, he repeats the exact same behavior, and we're told this in verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more. And the stated reason in the English language is because it's the son of his old age. But there's a play on words here in the Hebrew language. It doesn't actually mean what you think that it means. Yes, Jacob is old. And yes, Joseph is the son of Rachel, his preferred wife. But here's the way it actually reads in the Hebrew language. It's literally rendered son of old age to him, which means this. Joseph is wise beyond his years. He's got wisdom like an old man, an old head on a young body. And Jacob looks at his son and says, that guy's got an old soul. He knows how to process information. He's got an old head on young shoulders. So as a response, verse 3, we see that he made him a very colored tunic. Now, Jacob may have produced this himself personally. More likely, he hired some craftsmen to make it for him and fabricate it. But this is what he produced, and this is a phrase that's familiar to the people at this period of time. Look with me on the screen at this phrase. In Hebrew, it says, kethonet pasim. And it's this richly ornamented robe that belonged to kings. So when you picture it, you need to picture it this way. It's got very long sleeves, and it extends all the way down to the floor, down to his ankles. And we're told, according to Scripture, it has a lot of color to it. 
So Joseph's coat reaches his wrist, it reaches his ankles, it's got many colors. The Septuagint, which is a Greek interpretation of the Old Testament, says that it's a multicolored frock. And archaeology reveals some information about this coat of many colors. Let me take you to an image that's going to be up on the screen, and this is the tombs of Bene Hassan. I want you to see them. I know they obviously don't look like a lot from the outside. From about 150 miles south of Cairo on the Nile River, this was discovered on the eastern bank of the Nile River. Now, from the outside, I said it doesn't look like a lot, but these tombs were put in place around the time Joseph lived, from 2000 B.C. to 1600 B.C., Long before there was Instagram and long before there was TikTok, people did post photos. Let me show you what they posted. Let's look at the next image up on the screen. That's a posted photo, and I want you to look at it very, very closely. This image that's found inside the tomb of Bene Hassan has workers in it. And you notice Egyptians right away because they have white towels wrapped around their waist. It looks like they just got out of the shower, but that's their working clothing. So you can always pick out the workers right away by looking at the type of clothing they're wearing, and then you notice individuals with animals, and those are agricultural labors, but then you notice the individuals in the bottom of the posted image who are wearing long, multicolored frocks. Well, that's the ruling class. Those are the rulers over the household, the garments of very rich people. That's not what the well-dressed shepherd is wearing to work. That's not the kind of thing you expect a laborer to have. It'd be like this. It'd be like if you worked on a construction crew and you showed up one day and all your buddies on the construction crew are wearing T-shirts and tool belts and you have a suit and tie on. Ever tried to do construction work in a suit and tie? You made a statement right away by arriving in a suit and tie like, I'm not one of you. I'm above you. I've got something different about me. So this action of Jacob the father... And Jacob, the business owner, is giving Joseph the right of the firstborn. He's elevated his 11th son, the 11th of 12, and he's giving him the rights of the firstborn, this position of preeminence. In other words, Joseph is replacing Reuben. Why? Well, you're going to have to read about that yourself and go back to chapter 35, and you'll find that Reuben really behaved sexually in a very egregious way, and it canceled him out, and his dad's going to deal with him. Don't read it now. Just bear with me, okay? Read it later. I know everybody's curious. What did he do? Okay. So the next in line are Simeon and Levi, but they've revealed they got really violent personalities. They killed all the men of Shechem. And Jacob's first four sons, they're born of Leah. Well, Leah's not his preferred wife, Rachel is, and Joseph is born of Rachel, and the intent of his heart was to marry her first. So the brothers are watching all this, and the brothers can see where this is headed, and it's not going to end well. So we discover the brothers can't even speak to him in verse 4, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. You ever heard the word shalom? I bet you have. Friendly terms is the word shalom in the Hebrew language. They can't even say, hello, Joseph. But it's much more than hello when you see someone in the Middle East and you use the phrase shalom, it's a Jewish term, it means peace be upon you, that your day would prosper. I hope you have a great year. That's shalom, God's peace on you. 
And they can't say that to their brother. They can't even say hello to him. The destructive dynamics within this family is so evident. Check it this way. This family knows God, yet they consistently sin by what they say and what they do. And this hatred and this envy is leaking out of them. And it's this repeated pattern of behavior. So note this. The presence of Joseph does not create the problem. The presence of Joseph just reveals the problem. This is a guy who just has God working through his life. He hasn't done anything wrong. And yet the presence of a righteous person whom God is working through so irritates the others that they want to become hateful toward him and they take action. So when you have one father and you have four different mothers and you have 12 sons, you have a recipe for chaos, sprinkle in a little bit of envy and add to the fact that Jacob himself came from a divided home and that division brought infection with him and he spread it to his sons. And so we find in verse 2 that Joseph brought back a bad report about his brothers to his dad and his dad's got to do something with this. It isn't easy for Joseph to be the overseer of his brothers, yet he's been elevated to this position, and now Jacob has to talk to his sons about their behavior, and they immediately know who the informer is. They don't have to tell them who the, who the narc is. They know right away. It's got to be Joseph, so it's no surprise. They hate. They sonne Joseph. The Bible reveals a few chapters later that Jacob actually knows about his son's feelings. He knows how much they despise Joseph, but he failed to act because he's such a passive father. Let's keep going and finish this out. Verse 5, then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us, or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. In ancient times, detailed dreams meant a great deal to the society that lived during this period of time, much more than what dreams mean to us today. We don't quite take them as seriously as what they did at this time, but I want to show you why biblically to understand why they should have taken this so seriously, and they did. The dream of Joseph really engaged this family in some very serious conversation and deep consideration. The meaning is easily discerned. If you've got 12 brothers or 11 brothers and you're, you're telling them that 11 sheaves gathered around you and were bowing down to you, it doesn't take long to put two and two together to figure out he's talking about us. So the certainty of this dream, though, the certainty of the dream becomes very evident when it's repeated the next night. Let me show you why they took it so seriously. In chapter 41 of Genesis, you find Pharaoh having dreams at night, and it says this, verse 32, then the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms, meaning twice, is that the matter has been firmly decided by God. This is what they understood in the ancient world. There is great certainty that God is going to bring Joseph's dreams to pass because it's repeated again. 
And so the brothers have this response. You're really going to rule over us? You think that we're going to bow down to you? Preposterous. And there is truly this sense of bowing down to him, and they're already so disgusted, they can't even say hello to him. And now we find in verse 8, they hate him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then comes the kicker, verse 9. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have still had another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. The exact same phraseology is used of Mary when she's told by the angel that she's going to have a baby and she's going to give birth to Jesus. And we're told that she pondered and treasured. The theme of our women's Christmas, by the way, this year, pondered and treasured. Jacob's doing the same thing. He's mad that his son has said these things, but he's also treasuring these things and he's keeping it in his mind as to how in the world will this be fulfilled. But that's not the reaction of his brothers. The reaction of his brothers is jealousy. Look with me at this Hebrew word. It's in your notes and on the screen. This word means to be zealous to the degree you're going to actually do something with it. Now, Jacob has just said to him, your mother and I are going to bow down to you? How in the world is that going to happen, Jacob? See, Joseph, the thought of bowing down to Joseph is just more than they can bear. And for the brothers, it's pushing them over the edge. If you're new to the Bible, you need to know this. The Bible consistently shows us that God does not sugarcoat the nature of humans. He shows us for what we are and that we are fallen and that we need a Redeemer. Okay, so question, should Joseph have told his dreams to his family? Perhaps he could have been a little more diplomatic about it. Perhaps he would have been a little bit smart to use some parsed language. So should Joseph have told his dreams to his family, or is this just the case of adolescent immaturity? See, the dreams can't help but irritate the family and make things much, much worse for him. So perhaps, maybe he could have been a little bit more diplomatic in the way that he reports the dreams, but check this. It's in sharing the dreams that God uses that tension, that difficulty to move this family to Egypt, which is part of the bigger plan of God. So Joseph had to share it for God to bring about these purposes. Next step, these dreams came after the robe is given, which had to give Joseph this huge sense of importance. But Joseph doesn't know it yet. In order for God to accomplish in his life what he has dreamed of, what he has planned and thinks is coming about, in order for God to do that, he's going to first have to take Joseph through some very, very deep water. So Jacob has just shoved in the face of his other sons his partiality toward Joseph. 
And this issue is exacerbated by giving Joseph authority over his brothers who are laboring out in the field and they're working like dogs. And then Joseph comes on the scene as the boss. And then he's presented as their ruler. And then to top it all off, this gigantic wedge is driven between him and his brothers when God gives him these dreams and these visions. And now they really long to be rid of this well-dressed Joseph. Here's what I want you to take away from this this morning. Although the brothers are about to scheme to completely remove Joseph from their lives, and doing that, they're believing. They believe that the key to silencing Joseph is silencing God's greater purposes. In doing this, they fail to realize the biblical principle. And the biblical principle is Psalm 76. Even the wrath of man will praise our God. Because if you know the story of Joseph, you know ultimately God is going to get the glory. Step back and ask the question, has Joseph, the 17-year-old, done anything wrong? No. Other than be available as a vessel for God to work through him, is he a target because God is at work in his life? Yeah, absolutely. You stand for truth and you stand for righteousness, you will become a target. So Jacob's partiality towards his son and the fallout that comes out of this is going to be used by God to orchestrate God's bigger, perfect plan, which takes us back to where we began with Peter's statement. Look with me again. 1 Peter 3.14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. When you are doing the right thing, and it appears that those who are in the wrong are getting away with it, remember God's greater purposes are at work. He is sovereign. He is on the throne, and He ultimately always gets the glory. So that takes us to the last part of what Peter said, 1 Peter 3.16. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. I put the emphasis there for this reason. If the ultimate righteous one who never did anything wrong is Jesus, and he is, and the righteous died for the unrighteous humanity, and God used that to bring humanity to himself, is it reasonable to assume that when God allows you to go through suffering as Jesus did, that he would use the righteousness in your life to bring other people to God? The struggles, the persecution, the hard times that you go through, other people are watching you. And that's why Peter writes what he writes from Rome, even though Nero is in power. God can use those circumstances. Psalm 76.10 means that ultimately God's going to get the glory out of every situation. So frame it this way. If God can get the glory 
out of the cross of Jesus Christ, He can definitely bring a victory out of your situation, whatever you're going through, because God always gets the glory. Amen, New Hope? Amen. Even those really hard things you might be going through right now. We're going to about to hear some fantastic stories of how individuals came to faith in Christ. We get to witness baptism in just a moment, but before we do that and we put the pieces with what we're going to watch with what we just heard, I would love to pray with you and seal this in your hearts. Let's pray together. God, I would pray right now for every one of us, myself included, that we would not quickly forget this truth and that we would carry this truth forward with us throughout the rest of this year, regardless of when things are going very well and when things are going very bad, that we recognize that you are sovereign and you're in control of everything. And while that triggers so many questions in our mind, Father, we do recognize that you're working a purpose that's greater than we understand, and you cause all things to work together for good because we love you and we're called according to your purpose. So we turn this time over to you that you would use it for your glory and for your honor and especially the things we're going to do this week. May we be a reflection of the Christ who is in us. We pray for this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen.